My name is Edward Kelly, and I have the honor of serving as the General President of the International Association of Firefighters. We are gathered today in this special place to honor the memory of those IAFF members who have given their lives in the line of duty. It's a sunny September day in Colorado Springs, an hour south of Denver. 1,400 people are gathered in a valley that looks towards the snow-capped mountain Pikes Peak. Every year, husbands, wives, sons, and daughters of fallen firefighters make the journey from all over the U.S. and Canada to watch as their loved one's name is added to the memorial wall. It begins with the national anthem of both countries. Fred Alder, Local 237, Lethbridge, Alberta. John S. McEwen, Local 80, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Royland Vidal, Local 1826, Fort Myers, Florida. There are more than 9,000 names on the wall, and every year, two or three hundred names are added. It's a sobering event, as each name is read out and the family is presented with a memorial flag. It used to be that flames collapsing buildings and intense smoke were the biggest risk to firefighters. Not anymore. On-site injury and deaths have been replaced by occupational disease, especially cancer, as the leading cause of death among firefighters. Occupational cancer would claim nearly two-thirds of these names, our brothers and sisters. Eighty years ago, protective gear was limited to helmets, rubber boots, and long trench coats. Then rubber raincoats were worn over the long trench coats. But there was no respiratory equipment, so firefighters fought fires from outside buildings. There are stories of firefighters growing long beards, soaking them in water, biting them, and breathing through them. As you can imagine, they only provided a little protection. Fast forward to the 1980s and the pants and jacket called turnout gear has three layers, one of fire protection, one to release moisture from inside and another fire resistant layer. It allows firefighters to go deep into a burning building and be protected up to 600 degrees Celsius. So deaths from inside the fire dropped, but not the death rate. Eric D. Segura. Local 872, Laredo, Texas. Welcome to the Poison Detectives podcast, a production of Canada's National Observer. This podcast is made possible by the Dragonfly Fund in collaboration with the Institute of Sustainability and Education and Action among the Dragonfly priorities is working towards a toxic-free world for the health of people and the planet. I'm Sandra Bartlett, and this is episode two, Who's Minding the Store? Firefighter Jim O'Toole traveled to the Colorado Memorial from his home in Newfoundland. As I said, it was an honor to attend the memorial. 
there was over 570 names this year and memorial flags that went out to families. So uh, it was a longer ceremony than usual. The names on the memorial wall go back to 1918. The solemn ceremony is a reminder of the risks of the job. It's risks Jim O'Toole knows all too well. I'm originally from Pasadena, which is out on the west coast of the island. I've been a firefighter for going on 23 years with St. John's Regional Fire Department and currently the vice president with St. John's Firefighters Association. At what point did you first start hearing that cancer was an occupational hazard? Probably in about 2006, we knew that cancer was present in the fire service. There was some that some studies that were uh, that were done early on. It is an invisible threat to firefighters across our country, more deadly than the fires they battle. Today, cancer is the leading cause of line of duty deaths in the fire service. Our Brooke Hash learned that nearly 75% of those honored at our fallen firefighter memorial last year died of occupational cancer. Their life expectancy is 10 years less than for other occupations. Imagine losing 10 years. In 2018, he became a cancer casualty. Jim went to the doctor with a back injury from doing Taekwondo and asked for a CAT scan. The CAT scan showed a bulging disc in his back, proof of the Taekwondo injury, but it found something more. They called and said, we can see a shadow like off your right kidney. And I said, a shadow off my kidney? What does that mean? Well, you have to come in and see the urologist and we'll go from there. So, Another scan of his kidney revealed what was behind the shadow. What do you know? Uh, a golf ball size mass uh, hanging off my kidney. And thank God it was caught in early stage. I got into surgery within three weeks and uh, they took out 10% of my kidney. Did, did it cross your mind that it was related to your job? Sure. In 2018, I mean, I was, again pretty well educated on, you know, cancer in the fire service. Um, so yeah, it, it did cross. Um, the unfortunate thing was I really never had a whole lot of time to think about it before I was into the next fight. I nicked a mole on the side of my head during my sleep, waited for it to heal for about four or five weeks and it never healed. And it started to get a little bit bigger and then it turned black friend of mine's a plastic surgeon, so I better give him a little text and see if I can get in to see him to get this thing taken off. And uh, I did. It came back as melanoma for skin cancer. That was five years ago, and the melanoma returned again and again. Kidney cancer and melanoma are recognized as occupational cancers for firefighters. Jim doesn't know what to blame for his cancer. But when he found out there was PFOIA in his turnout gear, he was more than shocked. Our members have so many hazards in front of them as it is, let alone having to wear a gear that's making members sick as well. So I think that's the really thing that pissed me off the most, because I couldn't believe that there are people out there that will put profit over the health of firefighters. And he looked to his union, the International Association of Firefighters, the IAFF, to tell firefighters what to do about the contaminated turnout gear. But in the beginning, the union didn't think anything had to be done. We heard about that in the last episode. While the international office of the IAFF in Washington was telling firefighters their turnout gear was safe because the manufacturers had told them so, union reps and individual fire stations continued to ask questions. Frank Ritchie was a union president in New Haven, Connecticut for 16 years. He's no longer a firefighter. 
one of the main roles of a union is to be a watchdog. And in this case of Forever Chemicals, the watchdog was being walked by the chemical companies. They failed to ask the hard questions and instead took on the talking points of the chemical companies. Frank found Diane Carter's Facebook page and read her blog about her husband and all the documents she was posting. He also saw the negative responses to what she was trying to tell firefighters. Essentially, the unions coalesced around the fact that Diane was crazy. The union was putting pressure on her to silence her, which was just outright wrong because while the union should have been advocating for firefighters, it was a mom from Worcester, Massachusetts. When Frank started looking at the cancer rates among firefighters, something didn't add up. What was really startling to me is we haven't seen the spike in firefighter cancer based off where the individual works. So you would think a firefighter in the suburbs shouldn't have the same cancer rate as a firefighter who works in the city that's going to more working fires. One would think that those cancer rates would be higher, but they're not. And not all fires produce smoke filled with toxic chemicals. So yes, the products of combustion definitely have an impact on, you know, probably a whole host of health issues. But the commonality of our cancer rates is we're all wearing fire gear, and that alone should be a red flag. The turnout gear. Every firefighter in every small town or big city wears it. Now, no one is saying turnout gear is responsible for all the cancers firefighters face. But it is an additional risk. My name is Neil McMillan, the Director of Science and Research for the International Association of Firefighters. My background is as a firefighter with IFF Local 162 in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. All firefighters in North America belong to the IAFF. Like Frank Ritchie, Neil McMillan heard about PFOIA in turnout gear from Diane Cotter. Diane was, uh, was ahead of all of us uh, in the fire service. Myself uh, and a number of other firefighters and health advocates that are firefighters were reaching out to her, asking her, you know, um, for answers because we couldn't get them from manufacturers and, and other places. A bit of a strange position to be in, unable to get answers about a safety issue. My role within our association at the time was to uh, advocate and support our members that had occupational illnesses and injuries. And I suspected that these PFAS exposures contributed significantly to some of those illnesses that uh, my firefighters in Canada were suffering from. With all the occupational threats facing firefighters, this was the last thing he expected. It was a bit of a shift in paradigm for, for sure. Again, the more information uh, we got, the more we looked into it, the more consistent our concerns were. And in a departure from the official line coming out of IAFF headquarters in Washington at the time, Neil says many firefighters had stopped believing the manufacturer's claim that PFAS was necessary to make the gear fire resistant. We want the most flame-resistant firefighter ensemble. We make it out of asbestos. If we want, but that's not safe. If we wanted to protect ourselves from radioactive exposure, firefighters, we would have our PPE made out of lead. We don't do that. And he points out that the use of this chemical is not regulated by a government agency. It's regulated by the National Fire Protection Association, a private group approved by the union to set safety standards. American states and Canadian provinces accept its decisions. And under the assumption the turnout gear is safe, fire departments are pretty well forced to buy the turnout gear that's manufactured with PFAS chemicals. 
uh, it's required by Ontario statute uh, that municipalities supply firefighters with NFP 1971 certified turnout gear. So there's no option necessarily to go to a product that does not have that stamp. Most firefighting union locals don't want to talk on record about the elephant in the room, how the previous leaders of the IAFF sided with the manufacturers over the safety of the turnout gear. Neil McMillan is no exception. As news of the contradiction between what the manufacturers and the IAFF were saying about the safety of the gear and what the science was showing, firefighters began to notice just how close the union was to the manufacturers and suppliers. Firefighters I spoke to pointed me to the videos of meetings and conferences that were almost always sponsored by industry, included industry speakers, and company names were prominent in all the conference materials. I'd like to start by, first of all, thanking our sponsors, Tenkata, W.L. Gore, Globe MSA, DuPont. They really came to the table and to provide everything we needed to put together this uh, cancer summit. Covered virtually all the costs associated with it, including this morning's breakfast, today's lunch, and so much more. So uh, please, everybody, uh, appreciation for our sponsors for our first cancer summit. That was former IAFF President Harold Schaitberger. A year after Diane Cotter published her article, The Real Cancer in Your Turnout Gear, the union held its first day-long session about cancer. Not only was the conference sponsored by industry, they made presentations. Here's just a bit of the video promoting the fiber Tenkata was using in the turnout gear. One thread woven together with incredible care and precision, bound together by a common purpose. We take fibers and turn them into the strongest fabric in the world. The fabric that protects the American firefighter, the lineman. There was no mention of what Diane Cotter had shared with the union that the fiber was made using a chemical that can cause cancer. But as Diane continued to post documents on her Facebook page and her blog, more and more firefighters started to accept that their turnout gear might be threatening them rather than protecting them. By this time, Diane was focused on a formal scientific study. She was working with Graham Peasley at Notre Dame University. We met him in the last episode. Graham had found more than a trace of PFOIA in his test of turnout gear that had never been near a fire. The suit the fabric was taken from had been in a display case in a fire station for a decade. I'd, I'd never seen a textile like that before. It was, it was, that, was, that was shocking to me that somebody had put all these chemicals into it. But Graham knew this wouldn't stand up as scientific evidence because he'd only tested four pieces. And that's when he told Diane they needed to do a study. So they came up with a plan. We could get more of them. I could, you know, we get 30 or 40 samples. That's enough to say, look, there seems to be a problem here. They're everywhere. So how to get 30 or 40 firefighting suits? Firefighters wore them every day. But Diane thought maybe she could get old suits or suits from retired firefighters. She knew the union wouldn't help her, so she turned to her community again. You know, I had a network of firefighters from Massachusetts, Chicago, Northern California. We needed 
brand new gear, which we received, then we needed to match it precisely by year, by manufacturer, by make, by model, to decommissioned gear, meaning somebody's worn it and now they're not wearing it. And this team was able to pull that off. And all that gear ended up at the door of the physics lab at Notre Dame University. Which was uh, was sent to us by various methods. Some, some people dropped it off in person, other people mailed it to us. Getting turno gear for free is one thing, but this time around the testing would cost money. It had to be done in a specialized lab that could identify which specific PFAS chemical was in the gear. Dr. Paisley's always worked pro bono for us. The only thing that they had to pay for was the sophisticated testing. It could cost up to $50,000. Imagine one day being told you need to raise $50,000. Where would you start? Diane started with bake sales and... Selling sweatshirts and having yard sales so that I could produce enough money to pay for the analytical tests. And I knew, you know, I knew that within the second month of doing that, there was no way that I was gonna be able to pay for 30 tests. No way. So she turned to the Last Call Foundation, a charitable organization honoring firefighter Michael Kennedy, who died in a fire in Boston in 2014. It's run by Michael's mother, Kathy Crosby Bell. I was so afraid to even bother her. I'm getting chills right now when I think back of that first conversation. So I introduced myself over Messenger and she she replied immediately. Kathy met with Diane and Paul in Boston and spoke with Graham on the phone. She became convinced her foundation should help them and she convinced her board to contribute $20,000. Then Graham asked the lab for a discount. He was hoping for 10% and was surprised when the lab came back with a 75% discount. I had to call him back and say, is this a typo? Did you mean this? And I said, no, eh, my brother's in the fire services. I'd like to offer you a discount. All in all, an unusual way to pay for a research study. Fifteen hundred kilometers away, a young lawyer was grappling with some of the same issues, looking for information about a mystery chemical that was making animals and people sick. I thought for sure when we first dug into this that um, you know we'd be able to get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. And like Diane Cotter, this lawyer was gobsmacked when he learned that what he thought was up was actually down. Rob Billot had just graduated from law school when, in 1990, he got a job offer from a law firm in Cincinnati. They had an, a group they called their environmental group. And really knowing nothing about what that was other than I had had one class in law school my last year that was on environmental law that I thought was interesting. The environmental group, as the team was called, wasn't protecting the environment so much as protecting the companies. Well, when I joined the firm, a lot of what um, we were doing for our clients back then was what we called Superfund work. You know, there was a, a law here in the United States that imposed liability on folks for abandoned hazardous waste sites all over the country to try to get those cleaned up. 
He learned environmental law on the job. All the different massive federal statutes like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Superfund law, the, the Toxic Substances Control Act. And, you know, my understanding was as long as you were doing what those laws required and you were emitting only the amounts that those laws required, you were doing what you needed to do to protect the environment. And learning the rules from the company's point of view, an education that would serve him well down the road. Then one day in 1998, Rob met a cattle rancher with a big problem. Wilbur Tennant called um, and asked me to help him figure out what was happening with his cows out in West Virginia. Rob was confused. He was a corporate defense lawyer working with companies to reduce any liability that came up. Why was this man calling him on his private line? Then the man mentioned Rob's 81-year-old grandmother. Wilbur Tennant's family owned a farm outside Parkersburg, West Virginia, the town where his grandmother lived. She'd given Wilbur the phone number and promised her grandson would help. You can't disappoint your grandmother. So Rob was prepared to listen. You know, when he first was telling me that he thought there was something going on, something nefarious between the company that owned the landfill, the DuPont Chemical Company, and the regulators, you know, the state of West Virginia or the US EPA, and that all this was being covered up, I had a really hard time um, actually believing any of that. Wilbur told him there were videos, so Rob invited him to come to his office and bring the videos. Fortunately, we were able to, to find a television with a VCR, <laughs> and we were able to wheel that in and started watching those tapes. This is from one of Wilbur's videos. I've taken two dead deer and two dead cattle off of this ripple right here. And they tell me the deer died with hemorrhoging disease. Well, it was hemorrhoging disease all right. The blood run out of their nose and out of their mouth, but uh, they've never, they've never checked into it. He had been videoing for several years. So we saw not only the foam on the water, we saw the impacts he was seeing in the wildlife, uh, the dead deer in the area, the dead fish floating in the water, the white foam floating on the water. And most importantly, we were seeing what was happening with the cattle, the animals that he had cut into after he was unable to get vets, um, either from the state or from the local uh, veterinary associations to come out and help him. He had started actually uh, opening up these animals himself to try to see what was going on. This is 153 of these animals that I've lost on this farm. Pretty uh, impressive material. It became pretty clear to us there was a, a pretty serious problem here. But still, he thought it was fixable. Rob thought the company was probably going over the limits of its permit, and when it was brought to their attention, they'd stop. From his corporate work, Rob believed companies followed regulations. When he pulled the state and federal permits, he couldn't find anything that would identify the foam in the water. He decided to sue DuPont, which would force the company to reveal what they were dumping into the landfill. But like Diane Cotter in Massachusetts, Rob quickly found himself like Alice in Wonderland, where nothing makes sense and logic is turned upside down. Digging into the documents, starting to get into the files, and seeing what was really going on there changed my entire perception, not only of what was happening at that particular site, but my entire perception of environmental laws. I knew it in our entire legal system, our regulatory system, <laughs> the way science is generated. 
just opened my eyes to things I had never been aware of before. This story is told in the film Dark Waters, with Mark Ruffalo playing Rob Bilot. I think the film did a, a tremendous job at capturing what was the real-world impact on real people that were living in this community and dealing with these issues. Rob thought this was a landfill where regulated chemicals were being discharged, and it would be simple to look at the permits and determine if DuPont was discharging over its limit. There were permits. There were there were limits on how much you could discharge, and those permits identified all these hazardous, toxic, regulated materials. Wilbur Tennant had gone that route, too, without success. Like Diane Cotter, Wilbur was a letter writer. He had written repeatedly to everyone he could think of, state authorities and the EPA. Finally, in 1997, the EPA decided to inspect the dry-run landfill where DuPont was dumping its sludge. By this time, Wilbur wasn't the only one. The EPA had received reports from several people about dying cattle and deer. The inspectors came out, gathered soil, sediment, water, clipped grass and plants, and netted insects. They found evidence of adverse impacts in the animals and plants, but couldn't identify the chemical. It wasn't a known or regulated chemical. So now the EPA has proof there's something hazardous in the landfill. You'd think the next step is to go over to the DuPont plant and ask a few questions. They didn't do that. Can't identify the chemical. It's a mystery. Case closed. Rob filed the paperwork against DuPont in June of 1999. A week later, he got a call from DuPont's in-house lawyer. The lawyer told him DuPont, working with the EPA, had created a, quote, cattle team of six veterinarians, three chosen by DuPont, three chosen by the EPA, to look into the rancher's complaint about his cattle dying. I had understood that we would be getting a report um, from the cattle team, um, I thought, fairly quickly, um, because we were hoping that we would be getting answers to what was actually happening to the cows, you know, which chemicals were connected. The report was expected in the next week or two, so the lawyer suggested putting off discovery. Discovery is the first phase of a lawsuit, when both sides are asking for documents and information. Rob thought the report might make DuPont reach a settlement with Wilbur Tennant without going to court. But two weeks stretched into two months, and then suddenly it was Christmas. Unfortunately, the, the report kept getting further and further pushed off and delayed. And we were running up to court deadlines um, to, to actually start bringing the case to trial. Finally, in the first week of January 2001, the cattle team report arrived. Really sort of um, opened my eyes to what Mr. Tennant had been saying, um, that something Something was going on here uh, because when I read that report, it did not match what I had seen at this property. The six veterinarians had examined Wilbur's cattle, drawn blood, taken tissue samples. They concluded there was no evidence of toxicity associated with chemical contamination of the environment. The water the cattle were drinking was not tested. They also concluded that the real problem with Wilbur's cattle, Wilbur wasn't a very good rancher. They blamed deficiencies in herd management, 
including poor nutrition, inadequate veterinary care, and lack of fly control. Wilbur didn't know what he was doing, or he was mistreating his animals. I had visited the farm. I had talked with these folks. They, they understood what they were doing. They um, had great care for these animals. This just weren't livestock to them. These were almost like family members. Wilbur had been successfully breeding cattle for decades, buying top-shelf bulls, including the second grand champion bull in Ohio State. So, you know, to see that kind of <laughs> approach being taken, you know, to blame the victim here, um, that uh, really, really started being concerned that maybe something else was going on. Suddenly it hit Rob. He'd been duped, duped into waiting and waiting. With six months until trial, he had no discovery, no documents that could help him prove his case. That was one of my concerns, you know, was that we had been played to some, to some extent um, because what we saw in that report, I think, was clearly not reflective of the facts or what was actually going on on that farm. The Poison Detectives will be back in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about an adventure. Ever picture yourself in the middle of nowhere on a sailing yacht? Blue Water Adventures can take you there. Join award-winning expeditions navigating Alaska or the BC coast in pursuit of wildlife and coastal First Nations art and culture. Celebrating 50 years of exhibition travel, Blue Water Adventures is a pioneer in ecotourism on the coast. They welcome travelers from around the world for unforgettable educational small group experiences. Visit bluewateradventures.ca today and discover a world beyond yours. After being played by DuPont into delaying discovery on his case for six months, Rob Billot was now in a rush to get the documents he needed. Round one of discovery gave him the rest of the landfall permits and regulatory documents, not very useful. He already had them. In round two, he asked for documents related to the plant itself, the plant that was producing the stuff that was being dumped into the landfill. We had asked for all of the documents relating to what, what the company was making at their manufacturing plant along the river, the Teflon plant. And we wanted to know everything that was being sent to the landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property, whether it was regulated or not. DuPont said, no way. If he wanted to know more about other materials, materials not listed on the landfill permits, he had to name the chemical. Hmm, good one. How could he know the name of a chemical that he didn't know? How could he identify the mystery chemical? Only DuPont knew what materials they used and which ones were going into the landfill. They were using unregulated chemicals, and he had 60,000 pages and no answers. We had a company that was um, not only fighting the turnover of the documents, but then, um, you know, thumbing its nose at the court's orders to, to actually turn those documents over and to do it promptly. But all of that resistance suggested to Rob that they were worried about what he might find in the documents. The court date had to be moved to January of 2001. Round three of discovery, he got another delivery, 12,000 pages in no particular order. He sat down on the floor of his office and started reading. This time he found something, 
a reference to a chemical, APFO, ammonium perfluorooctanate, what he would soon learn was also known as PFOA. That's the same chemical used in firefighting turnout gear. It's almost a year after we had been digging through these materials um, that referenced this chemical PFOA. And it was, a, it was in a document by DuPont going to the U.S. EPA. DuPont wrote to the EPA in June of 2000. And they were talking about this chemical and the fact that it was in this landfill. <laughs> and I had never heard of this chemical. The question, why would DuPont be talking to the EPA about one of its chemicals? Could that mean the chemical was unsafe? And when I first started seeing references to this chemical PFOA in the DuPont documents, I went to my list of all of the regulated hazardous toxic chemicals, at least that existed in the United States. I didn't see any reference to this chemical. But the contact between DuPont and the EPA was nagging at him. Why, if this isn't regulated, why are they talking to the regulators about it? He talked to a chemistry expert who told him it might be related to a chemical he'd only recently heard of, PFAS, because 3M had announced two months earlier in May of 2000 that it would stop producing the chemical. 3M is the supplier of the chemicals. Remember, PFAS is the family, and PFOIA and PFOS were in wide use. If PFOS wasn't regulated, why would a company like 3M stop producing it? particularly when it was being used in one of 3M's biggest sellers, Scotchgard, the miracle spray that protected against water and stains. 3M said there were no health concerns. It was stopping production out of concern for the environment. But there was another version of the story that caught Rob's attention. The EPA told the New York Times that 3M's own tests had shown the chemical could pose a risk to human health and the environment. And if 3M hadn't voluntarily withdrawn it, the EPA would have forced it to do so. You know, here you've got a company that has been making these CA chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, that is claiming to have suddenly voluntarily pulled them off the market. Something would be prompting that decision. Rob went back to the documents and saw that PFOA was used in the manufacture of Teflon. Like Scotchgard for 3M, Teflon was a big seller for DuPont. Manufacturers of electric motors say that because Teflon resists heat, they are now able to make an electric motor that weighs 50% Teflon less. was a revolutionary creation. It was, as often things are in science, an accident. A DuPont scientist was trying to create a new chemical to cause cooling, the kind of coolant our refrigerators depend on, when he found a slippery, white, waxy gel. DuPont patented the gel, and within a decade in the late 40s, it was producing 20 million pounds of Teflon. It was first used in the creation of nuclear weapons, but the miracle products came soon after. In 1961, the first non-stick cookware called Tefal came on the market and revolutionized kitchens. Here is a commercial bakery bread tin that is lined with this Teflon enamel. It has baked 1,258 loaves of bread, and it's never had a drop of grease in it. Just put in the dough, bake the bread, out pops the loaf. The bread doesn't stick to Teflon. Someday, 
You ladies may have a lot of things that are coated with Teflon. So if 3M was stopping production of the chemical DuPont needed to make Teflon, what was going on? And why was DuPont talking to the EPA about an unregulated chemical it used? One thing Rob knew for sure, this was the chemical in the landfill that leached into the water where Wilbur Tennant's cattle drank. It took a lot of time retaining experts to try to help us understand what this new chemical was, um, what the potential effects of it could be. He did have one thing on his side. Now that he knew the name of the chemical, he could ask DuPont for all internal records or studies related to it. So round four of discovery didn't go smoothly. DuPont said it had given him nearly 90,000 pages, and that should be enough. Rob had to go to court again. The trial date was changed to October 2001. And those DuPont documents? Several of the attorneys in the company, one of them in particular was expressing concern about the fact that these chem this chemical, PFOA, uh, was in the community's drinking water and people hadn't been told. You had lawyers and a lot of very good lawyers, you know, that were trying to get their clients at DuPont to do the right thing and, you know, to, to recognize what the science was showing. Rob now had what he needed to win against DuPont, but he had more than that. Wilbur's case was about water his cows drank. But through those internal memos, he knew that a community of 70,000 downstream from DuPont's Washington Works plant were drinking contaminated water. He needed to alert state and federal agencies about this. He sent a letter to the EPA and CC'd a whole bunch of others. It's really to, to alert them to a public health threat uh, and to, to get those facts out there. Uh, to the different federal and state agencies in hopes that they would take action. He laid out all his evidence, 19 pages of text with almost 1,000 pages of documentation. Hey, this chemical, PFOA, not only is it out there, it's being found in people's drinking water and in their blood. And maybe, you know, this is something you need to be looking at. And there's a lot of internal information that these companies had that they didn't share with you. We started providing that information from the documents we were getting out of our court case. That's when the EPA really first became aware. And he sent a copy of the letter to DuPont. To put the company on notice that here's what we are aware of from within your own files. You should be accepting responsibility for what's, what's been going on here with this public water supply. DuPont's response was to go to court asking for a gag order to stop Rob from publicly talking about the information in the letter. When DuPont saw that I had signed up to have that discussion, they went into federal court to try to get an order to prevent me from being able to speak. Um, and luckily, the federal court denied that, saying this is public health threat information. We are certainly allowed to provide that to the public agencies charged with protecting the public. Meanwhile, things weren't great for Wilbur Tennant. He was quite sick. His nose and sinus passages were constantly plugged, forcing him to breathe through his mouth. Even then, he couldn't get enough air into his lungs. He had a constant headache and felt like something was stuck in his throat. He made frequent visits to the hospital, and doctors were giving him medicine to help him breathe. But there was no diagnosis of what was causing it. And when he went out into the community, 
He faced people upset with his lawsuit. A lot of Mr. Tenet's neighbors were not too happy about that. You know, at the time, DuPont was one of the biggest employers in town. Everyone either worked there, they had family that worked there, they knew somebody that worked there, they had an incredible reputation, you know, the, the DuPont name was on the schools and on the parks. I mean, it was an integral part of the community. So, you know, to, to take that on um, was not popular. In May of 2001, DuPont called and asked to talk about a settlement in Wilbur's case. Most civil lawsuits end this way. That was the start of several weeks of negotiation, sometimes angry, sometimes close to breaking down, but in the end, there was a settlement. The details remain secret, as most of these settlements do. Rob says Wilbur was just happy that the biggest secret, the name of this toxic chemical, was revealed. Yeah, Mr. Tennant, I think, was, was incredibly grateful in the, to, to know that that information was getting out to the EPA was getting out to, to the media at that point so that the public could start to be informed that this was happening. In the years after the settlement, Wilbur's health got worse. He had a form of cancer and then he had actually a heart attack. He unfortunately passed away and then his wife also developed cancer, Sandra, and passed away a couple of years later. So unfortunately, we lost both of them before they could see you know, the rest of the world um, waking up to this contamination problem. The favor to his grandmother, help her neighbor, Wilbur Tennant, done. Rob was free to go back to corporate law. That was a point in time where we could have just walked away. You know, we had, we had done what we had been asked to do. But what really was, was bothering me was what I saw in those documents. He had information that no one outside DuPont and 3M knew especially the regulator, the Environmental Protection Agency. But he thought if he could decide to keep going, could he convince his law firm to back him? Or would he be ordered back to the corporate world? Next time on The Poison Detectives. I mean, today we have the best regulations that money can buy. And I say that with a great deal of sorrow, but it's the reality. The amount of money that is spent on lobbying to block enforcement to block new regulations, to block new laws, is astounding. The podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. Story editing by Backtrack Productions. Production assistance by Zara Kozema and David Mackay. The executive producer is Linda Solomon-Wood. This podcast received additional support from Creative BC and the province of British Columbia. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us. And I love reading your comments. Thanks for listening. <laughs>